Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sports Legends of the Carolinas. I'm your host, Scott Fowler, sports columnist for the Charlotte Observer, where I've worked since 1994. And in this podcast, I seek out some of my favorite sports legends from the Carolinas and ask them to tell me stories from their time on and off the field as they rose to iconic status. Our college basketball analyst, Jay Billis, joining us live on SportsCenter again. For this episode of Sports Legends of the Carolinas, I'm delighted to have a true legend in broadcasting. Jay Billis is currently an ESPN basketball TV analyst, the leading voice of the game, and in many ways, its conscience. Jay is also a former Duke basketball player who started for the 1986 Duke team that made it to the national finals. For Duke, at center, a 6'8 junior from Rolling Hills, California, number 21, Jay Phillips. A weightlifter who's really improved himself. After that, he became a Blue Devil assistant coach, an attorney with a degree from Duke Law School, and even, briefly, an actor. He lives in Charlotte. We sat on Jay's back porch for this conversation where we talked about the Duke-UNC rivalry, the NIL controversy in college sports, and facing off in court against perhaps his most fearsome opponent, Barney the Dinosaur. You know, I always thought in law school I'd be arguing these you know, complex cases, maybe some sort of constitutional First Amendment issue, and it'd be really hoity-toity, and here I am arguing over, over Barney the Purple Dinosaur. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast wherever you're listening and consider a digital subscription to the Charlotte Observer. We welcome to the show Jay Billis on Sports Legends of the Carolinas. Jay, welcome to the show. Scott, thanks for having me. I I think uh, some real legends must have turned you down if you had to (laughs) scrape the bottom of this barrel to get me. Speaking of that, uh, so you have done uh, one thing I, I love about you is you, you you're very renaissance. You've done a lot of different things. So I wonder when you're at a party of some sort and someone has no clue what you do, uh, like how you introduce yourself, where, where you start. Well, if they ask uh, if they ask what I do, uh, usually my answer is about what. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but, but I'll tell them, you know, I work work for ESPN and. Um, and I'm, I'm commentate basketball games. Um, and if I, you know, years ago, I used to just say I'm, I'm a lawyer with Moore and Van Allen because that, that was my primary gig and I did broadcasting on the side. But now that broadcasting is my, my full-time thing, I'll, you know, I'll talk a little bit about it, but usually people's eyes glaze over. We move on to something more interesting. <laughs> so the broadcasting part, I know you, so you went to law school. How did you get your start in broadcasting and and why was that an interest of yours when you had obviously another career path you could have followed you know when i was a kid my my mother encouraged me to do things outside the norm and uh so she wanted me to be a a cultured person so i say encouraged she made me do a lot of things that i didn't want to do so i i had to take public speaking courses and forensics courses when i was in um what they call middle school here intermediate school and then high school and uh, I mean, she made me take ballroom dance, um, and I did. I actually competed as a ballroom dancer, if you can believe that. I kept that a profound secret from my <laughs> friends when I was a kid. Uh, but you know, when I started to become recognized in basketball, you get interviewed, and people would say, "What do you want to do after basketball?" And I, I didn't really know, and so I said, "Well, you know, maybe I'd like to maybe get into broadcasting." Because at that time, a lot of former athletes were starting to get into that. Frank Gifford being the most prominent. And, and then in my area, Don Drysdale uh, was broadcasting baseball. And I thought, well, may, why not me? Maybe I could do that. 
And when I was being recruited for college back then, uh, coaches could introduce you to alums. And so when they heard about the broadcasting thing, a lot of coaches were focused upon that, that, hey, here's an in, we can introduce them to this person or that person. And Coach K introduced me to a guy named Chuck Howard, who was a big time producer at ABC Sports at the time. And I started working for ABC Sports during the summertime. So I was a production, they call it a production assistant, which is a, a nice way of saying I was a, a runner. I was a gopher. And, but I worked all kinds of events. I worked Monday Night Baseball, the Olympics, uh, the PGA Championship in 1983 at Riviera Country Club. And I did, I did professional bowling events. Really? Yeah. Um, and I was a behind-the-scenes worker. Uh, but I met, oddly enough, I met a, a lot of people that I still not only see but work with. And uh, it was a great entree into the business, and, and it, it piqued my interest, and, uh, and I started to do things on campus uh, with it and, uh, and really thought, I think I can do this. Uh, but it, it, when, I, when I got married and moved to Charlotte, I thought, well, there's, you know, I'm not going to be able to do this. I took a job as a lawyer. I was a litigator with Moore and Van Allen. But I got a phone call from a guy named George Habel, who was the president of the Capital Sports Network. And we went to lunch, and he asked me if I would do the Duke basketball games as a color commentator. And I thought, I don't know, I don't know if I could swing this. You know, it's it's a lot of time taken away from my law practice. But I started thinking about it. And I said, you know what, I'm going to do this. And if I if I can't do it, I'll quit. But why would I quit before I started? And I start I did the Duke games for a couple of years, and somebody from ESPN started offering me work, and that's how it happened. And I started doing more and more work, and then having more and more games impacted my law practice to the point where I need to make a decision here. And ESPN offered me a full-time, full-time job. And I thought, you know, why not? Let's take, you know, I, when you're a kid, you know, your parents and others say, you know, you need your education and all this to fall back on. And I thought, well, if I don't try something I want to try, what am, I'm not really falling back. I'm, I'm just sort of doing, doing, I'm staying in the fallback position. Um, not that being a lawyer is falling back. It's a great job, but, uh, you know, I, I haven't regretted it. And that, and, and yet you still, so you, when did you make the, when did you stop practicing law? It was probably around 1999 or 2000, give or take. Um, I got a full-time offer from ESPN and, uh, and I took it and it's one of those things, whether you work for a bank or a law firm, I'm sure it's similar in a lot of different companies when you give notice that, Hey, I'm leaving. Um, you know, they throw a little party for you and everybody has a cocktail. They pat you on the back and say, good luck. And that's the end of it. And at, at this event for me, uh, people were asking, well, when are you going to move to New York? They thought <laughs> I was moving to New York or Connecticut to work for ESPN. And I said, oh, I'm, I, you know, I, I work remotely. So, uh, you know, I'll go to games all over. So I'm staying in Charlotte. And I can't remember, it was a week or 10 days later, the managing partner came into my law, my law office and said, because uh, I had told them I would stay and see, see through a few more cases that I had that were headed to trial, see if they'd settle or whatever. And, uh, and they asked me to stay. So I, uh, they, they gave me a position called of counsel, which is a nice way of saying, I, you know, nice way of, uh, of putting it that I didn't, I didn't, I just didn't do very much, but I did a little bit of recruiting, business development, and, uh, and it was, it's been great for me. I have an office to go to every day and kept my legal assistant. And so I have all the resources of the firm without carrying my weight anymore. That sounds like a good gig. It's been fantastic. Yeah. It's been great for me. There's so many smart people that I've benefited from. And, and even in basketball, there are so many legal issues over the past 20 years that have come up 
so my law background's been really helpful, and then having all those resources at my fingertips to help me find the right answer has been really helpful. And your most famous case, I think, was when you went against Barney the Dinosaur. Yeah, that, that's that's the one that... that uh, brings a smile to everyone's face and then haunts me to this day. The company that licenses Barney products is filing a lawsuit to protect what it says is the wholesome image of the popular children's TV character. Lions Partnership is suing at least 700 costume shops and retailers in 20 states for copyright infringement. The company says people in Barney costumes drink, smoke, and swear, and that's not good for Barney's reputation. The retailers say the costume is not the character. You dream about purple dinosaurs. You may have even known this person. His name was Philip Morris. He was a, a costume uh, yeah, guy. Yeah, sure. He, Morris he, Costumes. Morris Costumes. Mm -hmm. And he was a he was a, a famous guy uh, in Charlotte back in the 60s and 70s. had his own TV show. And he referred to himself as the Colonel Sanders of the costume industry. And he was being sued by the, the company that owned Barney for copyright and trademark infringement because he had, he along with others around the country, had costumes that they felt looked too much like Barney that he would rent out and people would use for birthday parties, things like that. So when the case first walked through the door, my first thought was we need to settle this because this looks exactly like Barney. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, the company was just protecting their trademark copyright rights. They have to do that. But they had a, they had, I don't want to say animus, but they had a, they had a difficulty with this guy and they wanted to make an example out of him for others. And so the amount they were asking for to settle was way over what they would get at trial. So we had no chance to settle it. So we had to take it to trial. And uh, it, it, it went to trial in the Western District uh, of, of North Carolina in the, in the federal court system before Judge Graham Mullen. And I had to stand up. You know, I always thought in law school I'd be arguing these you know, complex cases, maybe some sort of constitutional First Amendment issue, and it'd be really hoity-toity, and here I am arguing over, over Barney the Purple Dinosaur. <laughs> My kids were little at the time, so, you know, they're watching Barney uh, oh, yeah. at home, and then I had, it, oh, yeah. I had it at the office. Yeah. Well, they didn't know what was going on, but it was ridiculous. I actually had to subpoena Barney to the trial. Whoa. Uh, because the other, you know, the opposing counsel pissed me off so bad that I, I, said, I said, screw it, I'm, I'm subpoenaing this thing to the trial. And when they were when they were arguing against the Barney being brought in, one of the arguments they made to the judge was, you know, there are only a certain amount of these costumes. They're all being used at shows around the country. These you have traveling Barney shows. We actually went to one of them with our kids, and uh, and they said and, and argued that the, it was too unwieldy because the costume was so big. You know, it's six uh. foot eight inches tall and all. Like getting it into the courtroom, and it weighed like two hundred forty pounds. And I stood up and said, Your Honor, I'm six eight two forty. I got in here just fine. <laughs> And the judge ordered it to the trial. Uh, it was so stupid, but it was it was funny. No one in it. You mean the costume? No, they, they was would just not displayed. allow it. They would yes. not allow it to be seen without someone in it. And this oh. is where I thought maybe I screwed up because when they did bring it to the the, the court, uh, they brought it into the loading dock and they backed a truck up and then opened up the back of the truck and there was Barney in in all his splendor. And every employee, it seemed like, from the federal courthouse was there, and some of them had their kids there. Oh, so yeah. I thought this might have backfired on me here. You know, I, I, maybe I was <laughs> too much of a smartass for my own good there. But oddly enough, we wound up winning, and um, and so I had to go to um, I had to go to the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals to Barney appealed because they were in trouble then. They they lost a lot of their trademark copyright rights, and. Uh, 
and I had to argue at the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals about Barney. So it was like one thing after another. But uh, but anyway, it was it was a, a fun case, and and uh, I'm still shocked that that we won any part of that. Did it eventually settle, or like it eventually settled? Yeah, after appeal, the yeah. So we won some things on appeal, lost some things, and then we wound up wound up settling settling the case. And it, it wound up where it should have been. Yeah. But the idea that we even went to trial over that was, a, uh, was a little story. odd. Oh, man. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back. So, Jay, in 2014, I had to look up the date, but you were kind enough to be part of a Charlotte Observer panel where we were in Spirit Square and we talked about a lot of the issues that have finally come to the fore eight years later. You spoke uh, eloquently at that time about why athletes should be paid, and that's a drum you've beaten for a long time. Now suddenly that's happening. So uh, do you feel vindicated by what's going on now in college athletics? Not vindicated. Uh, I felt like my position all along has been right, and it wasn't necessarily an advocacy position as much as it was an answer to the rhetoric of, of the NCAA machine. You know, the idea, I mean, the thing that, that I, I have always found odd about this is, you know, the discussion is only about athletes and what athletes deserve or should be allowed. There's never any discussion about what the colleges should be doing and you know this when i was when you and i were in college there was a a seismic shift in college sports from a supreme court decision from a a case called the board of regents case back in the day the ncaa ruled with such an iron fist over its memberships that it would it would tell schools how often they could be on television Mm. so notre dame could only be on a certain amount and Oklahoma can only be Georgia can only be on a certain amount. And the schools are like, wait a minute, you know, we should be on TV whenever we want. You know, this is promotional for our programs and there's revenue there. And, uh, you know, the NCAA and its infinite wisdom thought that uh, they could oversaturate the market. And if there were too many games on television, people would stop actually going to the games and they would jeopardize their ticket revenue, which they thought was all there was. That was what needed to be protected. It wasn't sinister. But uh, the schools took them to court, took the NCAA to court, and won. And that's where conference contract, media rights contracts came into being. That's where the the CFP started. Uh, It was called something. It was called the College Football Association. And that's when football was taken away, essentially, from the NCAA. And all the NCAA had was the basketball tournament. But from that decision came these gigantic media rights deals, uh, these gigantic apparel deals, uh, coaches' contracts went through the roof. I think when I was playing for Coach K, there's no way he made over a hundred thousand dollars a year. And now, what is he? You know, before he retired, was he making twelve million? Um, so, and, and I don't begrudge any coach whatever they can make. I think they should. It's a market-driven thing. But I always felt like the players should be able to compete in that space too. And I recently had a conference commissioner say, "Well, rationality needs to be brought into the process with regard to, to players and this NIL stuff." And where it's headed. And I thought about it and I was like, what's rational about running a multi-billion dollar entertainment industry off of a college campus? I mean, <laughs> if we're not going to, if we're not going to address that's irrational given the, the NCAA's rhetoric, uh, I think it's entirely rational to pay the athletes what they're worth. Uh, so, you know, that's going to be a market driven thing. 
we'll, we'll ultimately reach the right place in this, I believe. You but, think this is sort of transitional? I mean, yes. the name, image, likeness seems to be yeah. very it, different in different places. Where, where, where should that land, do you think? I mean, ultimately, Scott, I think it lands with the institutions just signing players to contracts out of high school or wherever they may come from, junior college, whatever. Uh, so you have a, a contract between the parties that governs their relationship instead of having this, you know, kind of NIL thing where we have a fiction that it's it's just about what the players can do outside of their universities. It's not based upon pay for play or their value to the school as an athlete. Those are inseparable things. And you're not going to be able to you're not going to be able to separate those. It's it's a it's ludicrous to think we can. But to your original question about do I feel vindicated? No, but I do feel like I was right in the the legal analysis and the logic behind all this. And, you know, I, I wound up appearing to be an advocate. But, you know, all this started when I was in college. I, and it's probably the NCAA probably laments this, but I was on an NCAA committee while I was in college. I was on the NCAA's long range planning committee. And when I was on that committee, there were a lot of policy differences I had with with my colleagues who were commissioners and ADs, and all of them were great. They were great mentors to me, treated me extraordinarily well, and unbelievable people. But we differed on some policy issues. And a lot of things that are being discussed now, transfers, uh, what athletes are allowed, things like that. And what it, whatever I would bring up in a meeting would be shot down immediately. But And, and sometimes condescendingly, uh, not that they intended that, but I, all, I felt like, well, I'm part of this, so whatever decision's made, I need to be supportive of it publicly, even though I vehemently disagreed with it. But when I became a broadcaster, I started really thinking about it, going, wait a minute, if official makes a bad call, I say it's a bad call. If there's a bad rule, I say, oh, it's a bad rule. If a coach doesn't do what they're supposed to do, I comment on it. Same with players. Why am I silent on policy issues? And uh, so I started, I started saying what I thought. And, uh, and so many of these policy issues are front and center right now. You can't turn on the radio or the TV without somebody talking about NIL because it's so different. Right. And the complaint, and transfer portal. Too. Yeah, the transfer portal. It, it's so it, it is different, but um, it, this was inevitable in my view. And it just happens to be happening now based upon the lack of leadership that the NCAA has shown over the last, I don't know how many decades, just the 40 years I've been involved. Uh, it, it's it's been laughable how, how poor the leadership has been and the fact they didn't they didn't anticipate this or they, they thought that their their legal position was bulletproof and it wasn't clearly uh, as the, the Supreme Court recently showed in that Alston case with a nine nothing decision. Uh, so we're here because of the lack of foresight and lack of planning. But um, but the market's going to determine all of this. Nobody is going to turn away from college sports. We didn't see a single TV set turned off uh, in the last year. In fact, ratings went up. Hmm. So we're not going to have to worry about, you know, the viability of the enterprise over this. All, all the things the NCAA said over the years were yeah, it'll kill untrue. Sports. Yeah, they were untrue. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to say lie, <laughs> uh, but because I think they knew they were untrue. Yeah. Uh, but they were all untrue. I wanted to ask you. Uh, do you think that sort of the the pre NIL system, the system we had for decades that you played on, uh, was it inherently racist? Do you think in some ways? Not inherently, but but race was certainly a factor. And you know, you had 
there are many people that refer to college sports as a plantation system, and they have a, a fair point. Um, but you know, I think it was, I, I believe it was simply a function of the NCAA just wanting, this is our money. And this is a professional business played by amateurs. And they, they basically changed the, the definitions and the wording over the years. Amateurism is defined by the NCAA as whatever we say it is at a given time. And that's literally true. Uh, so they've changed it. it. It started out as no scholarships, no nothing to an athlete. This is supposed to be played by students. Oh, that's true. And then it became scholarships and then it became scholarship and a stipend. And uh, they used to try to, the NCAA used to monitor what food athletes got, including, uh, and, and it became a, a tremendous embarrassment for them. And I, I might have led that parade too. Uh, but there was a rule called the fruits, nuts, and bagels rule. So when a team would have an early morning practice, they would want to feed the players. But if you gave them, you could give them fruits, fruit, nuts, or bagels. But anything other than that would be a meal. <laughs> so you could give them grapes, but not grape jelly. If there was grape jelly, that bagel became a meal. Uh, you could give them peanuts, but not peanut butter. That became a meal. You couldn't have a spread on the bagel. You know, things like that. It was so stupid. And, you know, the NCAA office was fielding calls from coaches saying, can we give them cereal? Nope, that's a meal. You know, stuff like that. And you're going, it's crazy. Doing? Yeah, it was crazy. It was yeah. crazy. Uh, so they gave up on that and it became unlimited food and the world still spins firmly on its axis. There's no problem. Uh, you know, schools complain, we're not going to be able to afford this. And they did. Same thing with the stipend. So NIL, um, I think NIL at first, because it was forced on the NCAA by all these different states that took action. And that should have been a pretty clear indication that the NCAA needed to move proactively and put some guardrails in place and some rules, but they didn't. Uh, but, you know, to me, we can be honest about this or we can continue to lie to ourselves about it. If anyone thinks that any banner hanging in any gym or any football stadium around the country had only eligible players, it didn't. Mm. Somebody broke a rule somewhere. Like all these rules, there's no way that you can live a normal life under the, under the old, old system. Uh, whether it was when I was playing, nobody was eligible uh, and nobody is strictly eligible now. Um, you can't live like that. There's just no way. And I'll give you an example. When I was in college, if I had taken my girlfriend to the same restaurant over and over, if you frequent a restaurant, at some point, they're going to say, hey, um, this one's on us. Right. So if that happened when I was in college, that put me in the position of, what was I going to do? Wrestle the proprietor to the floor and say, no, take my money. Um, of course that happened. And and it's it's happened everywhere. Of course. Um, yeah. and, and people go, aha. See, gotcha. Billis took a free meal somewhere. <laughs> Everybody did. And, uh, and it, it, it's stupid. And now the NCAA is no longer policing what car someone's driving. Where did you get that watch? Why do you have that chain around your neck? That's one of the areas where race has been a factor. Because honestly, I don't remember a whole lot of cases where the NCAA is asking where a white kid got a car. And what they're looking into, they're, they're looking into the finances of families of predominantly African-American players. 
And that's never been right. It's never been fair. Uh, and, and race was clearly a factor there. There is sort of a, on social media at least, a grassroots movement that Jay Billis should be the next NCAA president. You've been very critical of NCAA leadership for many years, decades. Uh, and Mark Emmert is leaving, I guess, in 2023. He, I don't think he's picked an exact date, but is that something you would ever consider? Well, first of all, it'll never happen because the, the college presidents would never want me uh, in any position of authority uh, within the structure. But I've always said, I serve on an NCAA committee right now. I'm on the competition committee. I've always said that I will help in any capacity I can help. So if, if there were a job or a position for me to do that I felt could be helpful, I would be open to it. Uh, I don't have to worry about them offering me a leadership position like NCAA president because that'll never happen. But I, I would I would certainly consider anything that would would be helpful because I I love basketball and I love college sports. I love all kinds of sports. I love high school sports. I love pro sports. Uh, and I think college sports is pro sports, but I love college sports. <laughs> uh, so I'd be happy to help. But, you know, I've, I've seen some of this stuff and I think it's funny and flattering and all that. But but I, I it's wholly unrealistic. It'll never happen. <laughs> So, uh, Jay, you and I talked before Duke-UNC in the Final Four this year, how big it would be, what it would seem, you know, what, what it was going to feel like, how much was riding on it. Here we go with Williams and Baycott about to meet for the opening tap. And a little slice of history down here in the Superdome. Now that game has been played. So what are your thoughts on... What happened? What you know? Does do the Tar Heels have bragging rights in perpetuity here? Uh, tell me a little bit about that. Well, it was a it was a a really interesting but unusual year because of of the way Coach K decided to retire. Normally, when someone retires, they just abruptly announce it before the start of the season or at the end of one. Uh, so we had a full year. I looked at it. We had a full year to celebrate him and his legacy and all that but it it put on the media you know we had to cover this the whole year and so from my perspective I wanted to save up all the emotional stuff at the end you know I didn't want to be this is the last time he's putting his socks on in Little John Coliseum or you know you didn't want every game to be about him only um, so for me the end was was really important and poignant so the last game in Cameron against North Carolina um, like I think in retrospect, you might look at it and say, you know, should Duke have done all the stuff they did with the former players before the game and, and all that stuff? Did that add something uh, to the current players, a, a little more weight on their shoulders, pressure? Maybe it did. But, you know, in the long run, I'm not sure how much most people are going to remember from the result as, as opposed to the feeling that you got. Obviously, for Duke and Carolina fans, whichever team won the game, those fans are going to crow about it. And especially for Carolina thinking, hey, we spoiled Coach K's last game. Uh, and then twice. Really? twice yeah, yeah, but the Final Four was different. Yeah. You know, I felt like – I always felt like – the it, it, first, it's amazing that those two teams had never played in the tournament. Absolutely. But it almost happened in 91. And, and that was a – there was a weight added to both teams at that Final Four that, that it could be a Duke-Carolina final. Um, 
But this one, uh, you had a whole week of build up to it. It sucked all the air out of the room. Kansas was the beneficiary of that, I believe. But that that was the discussion. You know, Duke not only Duke Carolina, but Duke Carolina in what could be Coach K's last game. And uh, it, it was. I remember when the buzzer went off. I was doing the game for ESPN International, so I was sitting courtside and uh, and ESPN doing the games international. My NIL deals in in you know Sweden are off the charts. <laughs> a bit, yeah. um, but when the buzzer went off, I had worked with Hubert Davis for eight years or so at ESPN, and we become great friends. And you know, it, there, there's nobody. I respect or admire and like more than Hubert. So I was really happy for him. And then I looked at Coach K walking off the floor and and it was really poignant. Uh, but I wasn't sad. Uh, I was grateful, you know, that, that you're know, thinking back over the influence he's been not only on me, but all my teammates and, and all the players that have played there, but his influence on the game. Uh, it, it was it was a poignant scene. Um, so for me, but the, the feeling of gratitude was, was interesting for me. I, I thought there might be a, a feeling of sadness. I wasn't sure how I'd handle the last home game because I had to call that game when, when everybody in America was, was watching it. You know, the other one, it was an international thing for me. They were listening more to, to Jim Nance and Bill Rafter and Grant Hill, but it, it was, it was a fun, I thought it was fun. Like I didn't, I didn't feel like it was a pressure packed deal mm -hmm. and it, it negatively impacted one team or another, uh, in the, in the final four. It was just one of these really cool things that, uh, you know, fans can keep it in whatever perspective they want. They don't have to have perspective. Right. I, I don't care that that's fine. Um, so if the Duke, you know, if Duke had won, the Duke fans would have crowed about it. Carolina won. They, they are crowing and they should, they should crow about it because it was a, an amazing game. But it was it was good to have it on that stage. I mean, I think it, having all the fans back and having that was a I think a needed shot in the arm for for the game for the sport. You know, after, yeah, after because sure. the calendar screwed us. Mm -hmm. You know, football got their seasons in because of the COVID calendar and playing outdoors and all that stuff. You know, we we didn't get a tournament in in 2020 because of the calendar. Uh, we we had no fans in 2021 because of the calendar. But the calendar was good to us uh, in in 2022 from probably January on. Mm -hmm. and, it was uh, back. Yeah, yeah, it was kind of back. It felt back. It felt yeah. more normal, didn't it? Yeah, so sure. That was yeah, having the, the, the normal feeling back to it, I thought was extraordinarily helpful. And then, so just looking ahead briefly to 2023, but UNC's getting almost everyone back. Yeah. Uh, they've all returned almost, and Duke is reloading again. Um, who do you think will be the better of those two in uh, the following season? I mean, without having seen them practice for next year, I think the easy answer is North Carolina because they have so much experience coming back. And, uh, and, and what I imagine will be a hungry team to complete what they, they think was an unfinished job from 2022. I mean, I think Carolina being in the championship game was a surprise. If you look back to January and, and the early part of February, you know, you saw Carolina getting better and uh, and becoming a, a team that you thought, well, they could play in the second weekend. Uh, but, you know, who thought in January that that team was going to be a, in the final four, let alone have a legitimate shot to win the whole thing. Uh, but I think next year with everybody back and that's where, hey, maybe NIL was impactful to have 
some of those players come back. Probably was, yeah. But also, I think the the positive experience they had, I think it speaks really well of the Carolina program and of Hubert Davis's leadership that so many of them decided to come back. Um, you know that 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 can't be denied. Uh, but Duke, with so many younger players, um, they're going to be really talented. They'll, they'll be loaded with talent. Uh, but it's young talent. You, you really don't know how that talent's going to gel and come together. They've, they've had teams that have done really well there. They've had a couple that haven't done as well. Uh, but but my sense is, John, you know, John Shire's really good. Like, he, he was a you great You think that's going to work out? I do. Fine. Yeah, yeah, I do. He's, he's young and energetic. Uh, he's really smart. Uh, and he's already shown that he's willing to make, you know, Hubert Davis showed he was willing to make changes. And John has hired a, a non-Duke guy as an assistant. You know, he just hired Jay Lucas from Kentucky uh, as one of his top assistants. So, you know, he, he's, he's willing to take a step maybe that in a direction that Coach K didn't take a step. Um, that, that doesn't mean he's going to do it all the time, or, but, but he's his own man, which, uh, which I think is, is important. It'll be great to watch that uh, as, it, as it unfolds. Thanks so much for listening to Sports Legends of the Carolinas. You've just heard the first half of our conversation, but there's much more to come. I'm really happy now, but I, I'm no happier than I was when I was doing the Duke basketball games. I was making 200 bucks a game. So for me, if you really love the job and love basketball or whatever you're broadcasting and doing it, what difference does it make whether you're, you're the, the voice of the Charlotte 49ers or you're the voice of the Charlotte Hornets? For that, please purchase a premium subscription to our show exclusively on Apple Podcasts. And for video of these interviews, visit charlotteobserver.com slash sportslegends. Scott and Jay Billis with the follow-up now with seven points at the center today. I'm Scott Fowler, and this is Sports Legends of the Carolinas. This show is produced by Jeff Siner and Kata Stevens, and the director of audio at McClatchy is Davin Coburn. For lots more content and to continue supporting this kind of work, please visit charlotteobserver.com slash sportslegends and consider a digital subscription. Connect with me on Twitter at Scott underscore Fowler or by email at sfowler at charlotteobserver.com. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please share with a friend. See you next week.